0: This evening we come to the message of 1 John, and this brings us close to the end of the New Testament, as we're approaching the conclusion of our long-drawn-out series on Through the Bible, book by book. I've often felt that if there were two, that uh, there are two of the disciples of our Lord that I would particularly like to have known in the days of their earthly life. One is Peter and the other is John. I like these two men, and especially am I impressed by the change that their fellowship with the Lord Jesus produced in their lives. This is what intrigues me about these two. Peter, as you know, was erratic, impulsive, brash. As someone has well said, whenever Peter enters a scene, it's always with a thud. Uh, he seems to have a gift of putting his foot in his mouth at the wrong place. He suffered from hoof-in-mouth disease. And uh, the, yet the Lord made him a, a stable, steady, dependable rock, as his name implies. And he became the, uh, a gathering point, a rallying point for the Christians in the days of the persecution that broke out in the first century. That was only because he was with the Lord, knew the Lord. And most of the change took place after the Lord's death and resurrection. So that we don't need to feel that it was the personal presence of Jesus that changed these men. He changed them after he died and rose again. Just as he can change us. And John was the other one that was changed by our Lord dramatically. He was a young man, the youngest of the disciples... In fact, many scholars feel that he was probably a teenager when he first started to follow the Lord, perhaps 17, 18 years of age, and with his brother James, he was a uh, a hot-headed young man, uh, given to uh, uh, to uh, sharp and uh, impulsive utterances, uh, with a tendency toward uh, blowing off steam and probably was a loud mouth now the reason i say that is because jesus uh, nicknamed him a son of thunder and that was our lord's uh, gentle uh, uh way of uh of labeling john's problem he was someone who just kept the thunder rolling all the time and uh, so our lord called james and john both sons of thunder but john became the apostle of love and was noted for his gentleness and his graciousness and his goodness he was called uh, the virgin because he was he never married as far as we know there's no record that he ever did and primarily because of the purity of his life he became a man who was characterized by such an outstanding devotion, and love for the Lord Jesus, that all his life he was characterized as the apostle and the manifester of love. Now it's this John who writes these letters to us. And as perhaps many of you know, this first, <clears throat> this first letter of John's is perhaps the oldest, uh, or rather uh, the last of the New Testament to be written. It may well have been written after the Gospel of John was written. And perhaps, therefore, is the last word we have from the Apostles. Undoubtedly, it comes from around the close of the first century, even perhaps the very year 100 A.D., which some of the scholars uh, tell us uh, it was written in. It was written uh, from the city of Ephesus, where John, the latter years of John's life was spent. And probably written to the Christians in this city of Ephesus who were facing, as many of us are facing, the uh, the onslaught of a godless pagan world uh, given over to the worship of sex and the uh, to licentious practices, lovers of human wisdom as all these Greek cities were and especially uh, desirous of exalting man and his abilities. Now, that sounds very much like California, doesn't it? So this letter of First John was written to these kind of people in this kind of a condition, and therefore it has a lot to say to us. When I was reading one of the commentaries on First John, the writer, the author said, the epistle of First John defies outlining. And for many years, I would have agreed with that. I thought John was kind of a rambler. He just wrote on and changed the subject frequently, like the telephone directory. And uh, it didn't look like uh, there was any any reason or rhyme to his letter. But as uh, as I went through the Epistle of First John in this last series, when I preached thirty five messages on this letter. I began to see the the makeup of this letter and saw that it was prob- it's probably one of the most orderly and easy to outline letters of the whole new testament John is concerned about one thing primarily and that is authentic christianity I suppose even by that time, in the close of the first century, some of the dullness and deadness and drabness with which Christianity has sometimes been linked had a begun to appear. The freshness and the vitality, the newness, the excitement, the drama of Christian faith had begun to lose its uh, uh, its glow and its glamour. And... Uh, John, therefore, is led of God to call people back to the vital things, to the things that make for real life. So he's concerned about an authentic Christian manifestation. And that authentic Christianity is always made up of the same three elements. So the body of this letter of 1 John is an emphasis upon those three essential things, that make christianity genuinely christian they are first truth second righteousness third love those three held in perfect balance uh, are uh, when they whenever they are manifested there's a sign of genuine christianity and these become therefore the three marks that john emphasizes as proof to anyone that he or she is a Christian, and uh, it gives us a wonderful measuring stick by which we can test our own lives. How are we doing? Do we fulfill these qualifications? Do we manifest truth, righteousness, and love? Those three. Now that's the makeup of the big of the body of of John's letter, and uh, he begins talking about truth in chapter 2, verse 17. The prologue, there's a kind of a prelude first uh, that I'll mention in a moment. Uh, But beginning at chapter 2, verse 17, verse 18, I'm sorry, verse 18, and carrying on through chapter 4, verse 21, or the end of chapter 4, you have his emphasis upon these three things, truth, righteousness, and love. But before that, Before he begins that, he gives us a a prelude, which is really the key to how truth, righteousness, and love can be manifest in your life. There's a relationship that is necessary. And that relationship, John terms, fellowship with Christ, oneness with him, identity, an identification, a sharing of your life with Jesus Christ. Now, if you don't have that, you can't produce righteousness, truth, and love. It's impossible. I read just this last week a very, um, a very cogent statement. I felt someone said that it's possible to search through all the writings of Socrates and Aristotle and Plato and Confucius and Buddha and other great world leaders of moral and ethical thought and to find in their writings everything that is written in the New Testament as an exhortation to men as to what to do. In other words, if all you needed is good advice you don't need the Bible for that you can get plenty of it from these other religions. But the one thing that these other places and leaders do not give you is how. How. And that's what John is talking about. How do you follow this good advice? You know, the golden rule is not uh, limited to the New Testament. You find an expression of the golden rule always in a negative form. In other religions, do uh, do not do to others as you do not want them to do to you, and so forth. <laughs> ah, but... Uh, in in Christ, you are found, you find the secret of how. It's by unity with him, union with him, fellowship with the Lord Jesus. He dwelling in you, and you dwelling in him. And that's what John begins to talk about. And he says from the very beginning that he has a personal experience of this. I saw him, he says. I felt him. I heard him. I touched him. He was a real person. Nothing phony or sham about him. And in the fellowship of his life, I found it possible to begin to love, to walk in truth, and in obedient righteousness with God. Now, that's the heart and the key, therefore, of the letter, what he begins with, this note of fellowship with Jesus Christ. And you'll notice that He emphasizes the fact that Jesus appeared in history all through this letter. And that's the first theme that he talks about under the heading of truth. The truth about Jesus is that he's God and man. He both is the eternal God linked with all the great revelations of the Old Testament that mark out the being and character of God and he's man having come in the flesh, lived among us, was a man, died as a man, suffered as a man, and all this in order that we might share his life, his divine nature. Now this was opposed to a philosophy that was very current in John's day. It's what we call today... Gnosticism or Gnosticism, if you want the spelling of it, G-n-o-s-t-i-c-i-s-m. Gnosticism, and uh, uh, to me, I think the nearest thing to it today is Christian Science. Christian Science is almost pure Gnosticism, because Gnosticism taught that Jesus that matter is evil, and spirit is good, and it therefore The spirit in man is imprisoned in an evil body. And the purpose of this life is to teach us how to somehow rise above the evil of our body and release the spirit from the evil material body and thus achieve nirvana or heaven or whatever you want to call it. Now you'll notice that that's still very commonly accepted in many places. And it's against that idea that John writes and says, now don't follow that because Jesus has come in truth, and he the truth about Jesus is that he came as God become man. And anybody who doesn't say that about Jesus Christ is a liar. Don't believe him. If he doesn't say that about him, then he's a liar. You see, the problem was there were quite a number of people back in that day who were Wonderful people outwardly, that is, they gave the impression of being suave and gentle and thoughtful and courteous. And they were not out to destroy Christianity, but they were out to improve upon it. They were out to try to make it intellectually respectable, according to the ideas of that day. And so they just dropped out, de-emphasized some of the things that the New Testament says about Jesus and emphasized others that agreed with what they wanted to teach. And thus they attempted to make Christianity intellectually respectable. Now the process is still going on today. And therefore John says, if you give way to this, if you succumb to this kind of a delusion, you will find yourself tricked and end up not a Christian at all, and uh, following a lie, and therefore you will become the victim of, of a sham and a delusion. And the results of that are terrible. Now in the second section, the apostle mentions, er, uh, emphasizes righteousness. You see, Christianity isn't just signing the doctrinal creed. It isn't just writing your name under we believe in God the Father Almighty and in Jesus Christ his Son our Lord who was suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified, uh, dead and buried and raised the third day and so on. It isn't that. It's more than truth. It's also righteousness. It means your behavior changes. And the emphasis of John and all the way as it is through all the writers of the New Testament is this. Look, look, he said. If you really have Jesus Christ living in you, you can't be the same person. You can't go on living in sin, doing wrong things, lying and stealing and living in sexual immorality. You can't do it. Because, you see, these Gnostics were saying, look, if if, uh, if spirit is good and matter is evil and our bodies are matter, well, then uh, the only thing that counts is the spirit. And what you do with your body doesn't make any difference. So if you want to indulge the lusts of it, go ahead. It won't affect your your spiritual standing with God. And as a result, They were turning, as Jude puts it, the grace of God into licentiousness. And people were being taught, Christians were being taught, that they could practice all the evil and immorality of their day, and God would still treat them exactly the same, and it would change their relationship not one whit. And John says, not so. He that is born of God cannot sin, because God's seed remains in him. And the two are incompatible. You can't have a Holy Spirit living in you and live an unholy life. And if you live the unholy life and profess to be a Christian, you're a liar, says John. And he's quite blunt about it. And yet there's still a third thing. You see, uh, it's easy for Christians today to say, well, yes, this is true. We've got, to, we've got to teach the truth and obey the truth and believe the truth about Christ. And, of course, we've got to stop the things that the world is, is doing. And that's as far as they go. And have you heard Christians get up and testify along this line? They say, I used to smoke and drink and dance and go to the movies and play cards and gamble and uh, all these terrible things, but I don't do any of them anymore. I believe in the the creed and I believe in the Lord and I've stopped all these things. And they leave the impression that uh, this ought to make everybody become a Christian to see such a tremendous change. But what we discover soon enough is that people aren't a bit impressed by what you stop doing not in the least bit why any worldling can stop doing some of these things if they have a good reason for it and they do it and if you start if you if that's the basis of your christian testimony you've got nothing more than they've got to say i've heard plenty of them get up and say how they stopped drinking and they stopped smoking and they stopped uh, sexual immorality, uh, when they saw that it was damaging them or hurting somebody, they quit it. No, you see, the world's not a bit impressed by stopping something. What impresses them is to see you doing something they can't do. And that's love. And that's why John says the third mark of a genuine Christian is that he begins to love not those that love him. Anybody can do that, Jesus remarked. But beginning to love those who don't love you and to treat kindly those who mistreat you to return good for evil and to pray for those who despitefully use you and to welcome and treat kindly those who are against you and are trying to hurt you. This is the mark, isn't it? No longer to treat with callous indifference those who have needs around you but to respond to them not to shut them out from your life John says if a man comes to your door and says I'm hungry and I don't have anything to wear and you have what he needs and you say to him well that's all right, brother I'll pray for you go away and be filled and be warm he says it's ridiculous to say that the love of God dwells in you absurd. How can you say that? If you don't love your brother whom you can see, how do you say that you can love God whom you don't see? See how practical he gets in these matters. And so he emphasizes that fellowship with the Lord Jesus, a, one, a day by day walk with him, opening your heart to his word and to his light, letting the light shine upon you and thus letting yourself be changed by the power of Christ will result in, in truth about Jesus, righteousness in your personal behavior, and love towards your brothers, your, your fellow members of the human race, as well as those fellow members of the church of God. And then the final result, and the closing note of the letter is, assurance. Assurance. You know things with a knowledge that is unshakable which nobody can shatter and no rational arguments will disturb you know that what God has told you is true you know that what he's revealed about the world is true you have a continually growing certainty that underlies your life and John's closing note in this letter let me read it to you is on that very note He says in chapter 5, the last three verses, We know that anyone born of God does not sin, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. That's righteousness. We know, he says, that we are of God, of the very nature and being of God, the God who is love. And the whole world is in the power of the evil one. That's why they can't love. They talk about it, they want it, they search for it, but they can't find it. Because God is love. And we know that we are of God, is. It? And third, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Truth. To know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ. What a declaration that is in an age when everybody's telling us you can't know anything for sure. That nobody knows anything for certain. John says we do. We know. We've been given an understanding. And then his final word, and it's such an important one, one that I think ought to ring in our ears every day. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Why? Well, because the first and great commandment is thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy strength and all thy soul and all thy mind. That's the end, the chief end of man. And an idol is to love something else as God. What is an idol? Why, well, it's a substitute God. Your God is what you get excited about. What you save your money for, what you spend it on, that's your God. What is important to you, that's your God. And little children, you who have found the true God, keep yourselves from these secondary idols, these substitute gods that demand your attention. And give yourself to the one who alone can fulfill in you all that your heart desires. It's a great word, isn't it? And a word that will lead us safely through all the difficulties of our pathway. Let's stand together now and we'll be dismissed in prayer. Our Father, you know the many idols that loom before us in this day. The God of pleasure. The God of of selfishness. The God of, the God Narcissus who makes us love ourselves, admire ourselves, look to ourselves. The God of love, Venus, how we follow her, Lord, and uh, exalt her when we shouldn't. The God Bacchus who makes us revel in, in uh, pleasure, seek that as the chief end of life fun as the most is the reason for living Lord deliver us from these gods these false gods that uh, will rob us of our faith and of our love and of our humanity and to make us to fall even more truly in love with the Lord Jesus who alone is the true God who has come to give us an understanding about ourselves and the world around us, and has come to teach us righteousness and how to love with a heart that is self-giving instead of self-serving. These things we ask the Lord in this 20th century hour, knowing that we are exposed to the same dangers as they were in the first century, and needing so desperately thy power. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.